And I realize with some of the things I'm looking at this morning, it's a little bit of that, but there is an emphasis, I believe, in, in the passage to doing specifically uh, with uh, our joy, uh, to rejoice in the Lord. For instance, what, what robs you of your joy? You know, if you think about the things that we lose our joy over, uh, going to Walmart and they don't have enough checkout lines open, and then you're looking to get in the line, and there's, there's two individuals in front of you. They both have two cards stacked full, and you know you're going to wait. And just as you get ready to push up, the person in front of you decides they need to run back to the, the ice cream to get some ice cream, and they're going to run up there, and so you're still waiting. Well, we, we allow that to lose joy over that. And, and, and the point is, and I realize it's funny, the point is that our focus isn't where it ought to be. We allow things like that to rob our joy. And so Paul, as he, he starts here, to rejoice in the Lord. Uh, again, he's writing uh, this. This is a prison epistle. He's writing as a friend to his friends. Uh, this is about ten years after his actual visit there. Uh, they sent Epaphroditus to minister to him. That was one of their church members to send a gift and to minister to him, help him out as well as minister with him. And he's sending back Epaphroditus and Timothy with this letter uh, to them. Lots, it's full of different things, but this area, uh, specifically I believe, these verses have to do with rejoice in the Lord, our, our joy in the Lord. I, I want to look at four words before we get into the actual verses I'm going to be looking at. I, I'm only going to be looking at verses, I think, 7 through 11. But there's four words that I, I want to draw your attention to uh, as we uh, get into the text here. Fin- the word finally. Uh, it isn't, it, this is not the conclusion. The text will sometimes determine that, for instance, because this same word is used in chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, finally, that is a conclusion. In chapter 4, verse 8, he is getting ready to write his conclusion, but right here he's not. This finally has, has to do more with the transition. There's something in addition to what, but different from what the previous discussion. If you look back in chapter 3, the previous discussion was about t- Timothy and Epaphroditus. You know, the serving saint and the servant's servant. Uh, and so he's, he said, in addition to what I've already talked about in those first two chapters, he says, I want to add this to you here. This is something else I want to draw attention to. So finally, something in addition. Uh, if you notice there in verse 2, beware. Uh, he says, beware be of dogs. Uh, beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. This is... Uh, uh, to be constantly on guard. This is to turn on, turn on your home alarm system. In other words, you're to have it on all the time. This is the, you're, you're to beware. You're to beware of those evil workers, those, those dogs. These are all derogatory uh, statements. He's actually talking about the Judaizers. Ever since he started his ministry, they have been following him around. The Judaizers basically followed up on his ministry and said... Yeah, that's great that you embrace Christ as your personal Savior, but you have to go through Judaism to make it real. In other words, you need to go through circumcision. You need to go through some of the sacrificial system. You need to do these works of righteousness for it to be real. So the Judaizers were coming along uh, behind him and saying, Yeah, that's great you embrace Christ, but it's Jesus Christ plus. So he said, Beware. Beware of these dogs. Beware of these evildoers. Beware of these who you need to get your home alarm system and turn it on and use it. So he says, beware. 
Uh, third word is confidence. I, I skipped one. Confidence. Uh, confidence can be used in a negative way and a positive way. In, in this verse, verses 3 and 4, it's in a negative way. He said, and, I ha- and, and have no confidence. You, I, have no confidence in the flesh. Now, the confidence is a, a belief of one's self or one's abilities to achieve a desired goal. Uh, I have confidence in my preparation that as I come forward before this morning, that I've prepared my message as best I can, God leading me to present it to you. I have confidence in that. But for me to say I have confidence in my flesh to deliver that, that's, that's, that's not a good statement. My confidence must rest in the Lord. So he says, I have no confidence in the flesh. Though, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. He said, I don't have any confidence in the flesh. Though, I tell you what, if anybody could have confidence in the flesh, Paul's saying, I could have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And he'd go on and proceeds to tell him, you know, I've been circumcised the eighth day. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. You know, he goes on, he, liter- he, he, he lists all these things. But if anybody could have confidence, Paul could have. But he's saying, you know what, I have no confidence in the flesh. The fourth word is count. Now, this, this is the accounting term. This is profit and loss. This is debit, credit. This is liability, asset. This, this is a, an accounting term uh, to, let me put this up. Uh, to evaluate and come to a settled conclusion as to its value. All right? Now, look, look at verse 7 and 8. And notice the profit loss, the accounting, the liability asset. It says, What things were given for me, these I have counted loss. Now, he just got done telling us about he was a Benjaminite, he had, he was a Pharisee, the Pharisees. He told us all these things. He said, but what things were given, gained for me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, or of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So the, he, he uses this accounting term in here, the profit and loss. But again, the point is this. We come to things. We come to, to uh, emphasis or lack of emphasis in our life, and, and we eval- evaluate them and, the settle, and to settle on a conclusion. What is their value? And Paul is saying they're worthless. They're rubbish. They're of no value. And I have no confidence in them. And I've, I've weighed them. I've evaluated them. And you know what? They're worthless. So we have those, those four words that we, we look at. When Saul, the rabbi, became Paul, the apostle, he took stock of his values and beliefs and found them to be worthless. Think about that statement. But in fact, this is the best definition I ever heard of worthless. It's a zero with a line rubbed out. Did you get it? It's worthless. We put so much value on worthless things. It's a zero with a line rubbed out. If anybody could have confidence, he counted it as rubbish, as worthless. So what I want to look at this morning is, why can I rejoice in the Lord? These, what Paul is going to give us here, 
are things that caused him to rejoice in the Lord. We've already looked at all the other things, that things that don't bring any joy. So what does bring joy? What, what is a value? What did he count as profit? So as we, this, is, this is what we want to look at beginning there in verse uh, 7 and, and 8. First of all, because of the knowledge of Christ. Verse 8. You indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered a loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. The knowledge of Christ. Because of the knowledge of Christ. The, if you look at the verse, the all things. That's anything and everything. There's, there's all things. Anything and everything. I don't care if it's uh, popularity, if it's position, if it's power, if it's money, uh, if it's property, whatever it is, all things. I count all things, loss, of, of no value. When I compare them, and that's the comparison in this verse, when I compare them to the excellency of Christ, they're worthless. As I compare them to things that are excellent, things that are excellent uh, is uh, ordinary to extraordinary. The uncommon thing to do, the uncommon thing in an uncommon way. The things that are excellent. They are, they are supreme. They are of great value. They are, they are quality. Everything and anything. When I compare it to the excellence of Christ, it doesn't compare. I can't compare it. It's of no value. It's the excellence of Christ. The word knowledge is an interesting word there. i put these two things up here. Um, there's head, the word is gnosko. It's used the second time in this text, and I'll point it out when we get to it. It has a little bit different emphasis, but the emphasis here is there's always with gnosko is head knowledge. There's always to know, uh, in other words, Paul knew about Christ. He knew the Old Testament scripture. He knew about Christ because he, he persecuted Christians. He had heard about him. He knew about him. He had a head knowledge of him. He knew that there was a historical fact. You and I have heard and know about Christ. But heart knowledge is that personal relationship. When you know him, not just heard about him. And this is what Paul is talking about. He says, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. When I came to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, everything changed. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Listen, when you accepted Christ, did everything change? Or have you slipped back? Now, you cannot lose your salvation. I'm not saying that. But you lose your joy when you slip back. See, there's a head knowledge and there's the heart knowledge. There's 18 inches between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ. I, I, this is what I mean. There's head knowledge and there's heart knowledge. <clears throat> there's 18 inches between, unless you've got a big head, there's 18 inches between the head knowledge and the heart knowledge of knowing Christ or knowing about Christ. So what, what, brought, what brought Paul joy? Because of the knowledge of Christ. Does that, does that just kind of light a fire in you? Do you get excited about that? That you know Christ? This is, this is what brought joy to his life. This is what ought to, brought joy to bring joy to our lives. 
because of the knowledge of Christ. Second thing, there in verse 9, because of the righteousness of Christ. And being or be found and be found in him, not having your or my own righteousness. In other words, I found I'm found in him, I know him, I have a personal relationship with him, not because of my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is from God by faith. The righteousness. When I accepted Christ as my oh, oh, let's back up a little bit. Christ became, as we look back, remember in chapter 2, he became the perfect servant in order to become the perfect sacrifice for your sin and my sin. And without Christ, we were without hope. So when I accepted Christ my personal Savior, I became clothed in Christ's righteousness. Because, you see, you and I, we can't die for our own sins and get to heaven. If we were to die in our sins, we would go to hell. We would be eternally condemned. But because we put our faith in Christ, we've been clothed in his righteousness. What brought joy to Paul? Because of the righteousness of Christ. Without that righteousness, there, we, we would have no hope. We're here this morning, those of you who are here that know Christ is your personal Savior, we're here because of the righteousness of Christ. Listen, Paul said, you know, one of the things that brings me real joy is the righteousness of Christ. To come to that full realization in and of myself, you know what, I'm absolutely no good except for the righteousness of Christ. I have hope. And I can stand before the righteous judge, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and have total acceptance from him because of the righteousness of Christ. There's external righteousness. That's Jesus Christ plus. That's law and works. And there's internal righteousness. And I probably could have said eternal righteousness because that's faith. Christ plus nothing. It's all in him. External righteousness in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to him. Another accountable, another accounting term, accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified by his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Uh, and I just want to call real quickly to this word justified. This is very important you remember this word. Just as if I've never sinned. We have been justified in the sight of God just as if I've never sinned. Why? Because I've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that external righteousness, the works of the law, it, it does nothing for me. It just makes a lot of work. But this internal righteousness is found in Romans chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but debt, Again, the counting terms. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, declares us righteous, just as if we've never sinned, who justifies the ungodly. His faith, that is your faith, my faith, is accounted, <laughs> this is great stuff, accounted for righteousness. 
when he goes in the debit loss columns and he goes to liability and assets, he says, you know what, this is an asset. This is a credit. This is an put to your account for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God, and here's a great word, imputed. It means he put it to your account. It's like you were overdrawn at the bank. Somebody, unknown to you, went in and they put money in your account. They applied it to your account so you wouldn't be overdrawn. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the, of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. God applied Christ's righteousness to our life when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We put our faith, he applies Christ's righteousness to us. He puts it to our account. That's internal righteousness. Faith is different. What brought, why did Paul have joy? Why can I rejoice in the Lord? Because of the righteousness of Christ. Third, we'll spend a little more time here in verse 10. Because of the fellowship of Christ. This is, a, this is a face-to-face, this is a lifelong partnership, the fellowship of Christ. When I put my faith in Christ, his righteousness is imputed, is put to my account. And that now begins a lifelong relationship. And that's the difference between Christianity and, and, and uh, religion. Have you ever witnessed to someone and they say, well, I go to such and such a church, I've been to, I've been to that church forever. Uh, that's, but that wasn't what I asked you. My question was, do you know Christ is your personal Savior? They're always talking about the church and how they attend church and how they were baptized in such a church or sprinkled or whatever it may be. Because that's what their trust is in. They don't have a personal relationship. And that's, that's what Christianity is. Christianity is a personal It's a lifelong face-to-face partnership. So Paul says, what brings me joy? Because of the fellowship of Christ. There's there's four things I want you to see here in verse 10. First of all, there's a personal experience. Now, remember that I may know him. Remember back in verse 8 when we talked about that I may know him. We talked about the heart, knowledge. This is what brought them to Christ. This gnosko here has to do with the aspect of Whereas verse 8 has to do with salvation, this has to do with sanctification. Verse 8 has to do with in Christ. Verse 10 has to do be like Christ. In other words, there's a salvation and there's spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is sanctification as I become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 8, in Christ. Verse 10, like Christ. And he says to them, it's a personal experience. As I, if there's the point in our Christian life, if there's any place where experience has an emphasis, it's in our living. You follow me? Uh, Hebrews chapter 11. The, they had living faith. They demonstrated their faith by their works. James chapter 1 and 2, when he talks about, you know, you say you have faith, show me your works that demonstrate your faith. It's not a work salvation, but your faith, your truth of your faith is going to be demonstrated how you live your life. This is that personal experience of living out your Christian faith, living out your salvation experience. This is where so many fall short. It's easy for us to sit here and say, boy, I've trusted Christ my personal Savior. But if somebody backed you in the corner and said, well, how are you living it? You would squirm and try to worm your way out of it. Because you didn't want to have to answer that question. 
You just want to talk about salvation experience. Paul is taking us to a higher level. Beyond just knowing Christ, but to living Christ. To be like Christ. So that it's, it's a personal experience. Also said, it is a powerful experience. The power of the resurrection, the same spiritual power that raised Christ from the dead was active in Paul through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The power of Christ. The same power of God that raised Christ from the dead is the same... I mean, think about this. This is the same power that indwells within you through the ministry of the Spirit of God. We, 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 oh, I, I'm powerless. No, you're not. The Spirit of God permanently indwells within you. It, it's like the, the coach said to his player, he said, listen, I'm not looking for excuses. I'm looking for solutions. Oh, I, I just can't do this. That's an excuse. You have the power of God that lives and works within you. That's why Paul said here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Ephesians 3.20, great verse. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. It's not if there's power in us, no. According to the power that is works within us. What power? The Spirit of God. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that dwells within us. The powerful experience. Blaise Pascal put it this way. The greatest single distinguishing feature of the power of God is that our imagination gets lost when thinking about it. The point is this. If we paused and took 60 seconds and all you thought about was the power of God, and then took it to another level because what we think about the power of God would be so low to what the, really, the power of God really is. He said, the greatest single distinguishing feature of the power of God is that our imagination gets lost when thinking about it. We limit God when there is no limit to God. The power of God. A young boy was traveling by airplane to visit his grandparents. He sat beside a man who happened to be a seminary professor. The boy was reading the Sunday school take-home paper when the professor thought he would have some fun with the lad, and he said, If you can tell me something God can do, I'll give you a big shiny apple. The boy thought for a moment and then replied, Mister, if you can tell me something God can't do, I'll give you a whole barrel of apples. What can't God do? There's nothing he can't do. He's powerful. Because of the fellowship with Christ, that lifelong partnership, that personal experience, it's a powerful experience. Then as you look down in verse 10, it's a painful experience. Now, as we, when we went back through previous in, this, in the book when he talked about suffering for Christ, it's hard for us to imagine that because we probably consider that I not really suffered for Christ. Maybe the most worst suffering you may have had if you've accepted Christ your personal Savior and you went back and tried to witness to your family and they just totally cut you off. That would be similar to this. But Paul, when we talk about suffering for Christ, chapter 1, verse 29, Paul knew it, it was a privilege to suffer for Christ. He said, for to you it has been granted. That word granted is gifted. It's a privilege it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, 
but also to suffer for his sake. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 20, 11, 22 to 28, Paul has experienced suffering for Christ. He talks about his shipwreck. He talks about being stoned. He talks about being beaten. He talks about hunger. He talks about thirst. He talks about cold. He talks about nakedness. And he's writing this from prison. He's going to be executed for his faith. It can be, it can be a painful experience. But what a joy, what a joy to have that life that lifelong face-to-face fellowship, partnership with God, that I may suffer as he suffered. We don't think of it that way. Because you know why? You want to know why? We don't want to suffer. We don't want to not feel good. Because our joy is based on how we feel, not on the truth of the Scripture. That personal experience, that powerful experience, and even painful experience. But notice the last one. It's a practical experience. Being conformed to his death. To be like him. Dead to sin, but alive to God. Romans chapter 6, verse verse 11, says it this way. And notice again, the accounting term. He says, likewise you also reckon... That's an accounting term. You reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a practical experience. Listen, I'm dead to sin. We live like we're alive to sin. We have that old nature, that sinful nature that we struggle with. Even as Paul said in Romans chapter 7, why do I do the things I don't want to do and the things I don't want to do, I do. Why is that? Because there is a sinful nature within me. I still have my sin nature. So there is that tug of war going on. But we need to reckon ourselves, to account ourselves, dead to sin and alive to God. It's a practical experience. Are you alive to God? What are you living for? Living towards? So Paul's joy, because of the fellowship of Christ, that lifelong partnership. Why can I rejoice in the Lord? Because we have that lifelong partnership, that lifelong relationship that we can only have through faith in Christ Jesus. The last one is there in verse 11. Why can I rejoice? Why did Paul rejoice? Because of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection. This is a visible demonstration of God's power. We talk, Remember we talked about God's power? This is a visible demonstration of God's power. He raised Jesus from the dead. He was dead. Yes, he was dead. But Jesus, or God, has the power to raise him from the dead. This is a visible demonstration of God's power. Secondly, this is a satisfaction of God's righteous demands. God, you, you and I could never satisfy God's righteous demands. It took that perfect servant who became the perfect sacrifice for us to be able to justify or to satisfy God's righteous demands. The word used in, in the scriptures often used, the word used propitiation. He has become our Christ has become our propitiation. Christ has satisfied God, and the resurrection is a symbolic of the fact that God's been satisfied through this perfect sacrifice. That's why we can put our faith and trust in Christ, and know and know, not doubt, not wonder, not hope, 
but know we have eternal life because God has been satisfied. And the third thing is, this is the eternal hope of God's people because of the resurrection of Christ. As, he, as Paul uh, says there, if, this is not doubt, it could be translated since, by any means I may attain to the resurrection from, from the dead. Now that's not any means like works or faith. That, that, that any means there has to do with the fact of whether I be raptured or I be raised from the dead. Either way, whether I'm raptured, whether you're raptured, whether Christ will return in the air now and we go to meet him, or you would die and be resurrected, either way, you know what? You're going to be with Christ. And because of the resurrection of Christ, I can have joy. This hope, this eternal hope, gives me joy. Don't, lose, don't allow anything or things to steal your joy. Two questions. Let me, let me conclude with these two questions. I've kind of alluded to them a couple times during the message. What stirs your joy, what stirs your joy in the Lord? What stirs your joy in the Lord? Because of the resurrection? Because of the power of Christ or power of God? What stirs your joy? Because of the knowledge of Christ? Because of the righteousness of Christ? Because of the fellowship of Christ? Because of the resurrection of Christ? Do these things stir your joy? Do you even think about these things? That's the question I had to ask myself as I was looking through the message. Are these the things that I focus on to stir my joy? Which brings then the second question. Maybe I should have asked this first. But what robs you of your joy in the Lord? When you lose sight of the resurrection of Christ, when you lose sight of fellowship with Christ, when you lose sight of the righteousness of Christ and the knowledge of Christ, you're going to lose your joy. You're going to allow it to be stolen from you. Men have pursued joy in every avenue imaginable. Some have found it temporarily, but more often than not, they find it an empty shell, or as Paul said, rubbish, worthless. You can't find joy in unbelief. Many of you know of Voltaire. He was a French philosopher. He was a witty, a very critical writer. He not only made fun, fun of government, but he, sa- he saved some of his sharpest barbs for established religion. He was very vocal and outspoken. He wrote... I wish I had never been born. You can't find joy in unbelief. Lord Byron, he was a poet from England. He led a notorious life. He had uh, immorality. He ran up debt. Uh, Even his poems that he has written are still used in literary studies today. But he himself personally found no joy in pleasure, he wrote. The worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. He had it all. He had the world by the tail. Money will not bring you joy. Jay Gold, he was uh, one of the robber barons. He made his millions off of the um, railroads. He wrote when he was dying, he said, I suppose 
I'm the most miserable man on earth. There was no joy in money. There's Benjamin Disraeli. He was the prime minister during Queen Victoria's reign. This is the golden age of England. The sun never set on the British Empire. This is where that statement would come from. Because of his leadership, uh, they spread out their tentacles throughout the world. He had position and he had fame. He was well known. He was respected. He was trusted. He wrote, (laughs) this is terrible. Youth is a mistake. Manhood a struggle, and old age a regret. He had position and fame. Didn't bring any joy. Not in military glory either. Alexander the Great conquered the known world of his day and sat down in his tent and wept and said, There are no more worlds to conquer. So where then is real joy? To put it real simple, In Christ alone. In Christ alone. That's where real joy is. If you're here here this morning, and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, any joy that you have is only temporary. And we, we want to give you an opportunity after the service, after we close in prayer, to come to myself. I will... I will take you a man with a man, a lady with a lady, and have them sit down and show you from the scriptures how you can know Christ, have a personal relationship with him through faith, and begin your life of joy. Let's pray. Father, we, we allow so many interruptions, so many incidences that cause us to regret. Many things that cause us to be sidetracked and drawn away from rather than toward you. And often our joy is lost because we've lost sight of what is most important. We've allowed every experience in every conversation, to be about us and not about you. And Father, I pray here this morning, if there's someone here that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, I pray, Lord, that even today they would come to trust in you. And with your eyes closed and heads bowed, I'd like to give you an opportunity this time just to raise your hand so I can see and meet with you after the service. Is there anyone like that who would like to have someone show them from the Word of God how to be saved? Secondly, part of the invitation would be this. Uh, Just, Pastor, pray for me that I will get my focus back on Christ and Christ alone. Is there anyone like that? Yes, others? Listen, folks, I, I say this from my heart. Don't get sidetracked. Don't let the checkout line cause you to lose your joy that your joy be in Christ and Christ alone. Thank you, Father, for all that you've provided. Again, I pray that we'll never get the place we take for granted the privilege that it is to be called your son, your daughter, to enter into that lifelong partnership with you. I pray, Lord, that we continue to grow, that our joy will be effervescent. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.